Good evening, church. Great to be here. Again, good to see all of you out this evening. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6 is where our text is this evening. Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 11. Theme of our message this evening is Christ's soldiers arise. As Christians, we need to rise. Uh, we are soldiers of Christ, and we need to be fighting the good fight of the faith and advancing his call. Covey talked uh, in his sermon this morning about fight the right war, uh, not with each other or be warring within or uh, fighting with God or anything in that nature. But today I want to talk about us being soldiers uh, talk for a few minutes about the armor of God and um, then look at some lessons from Rome. And uh, as we go through our sermon tonight, I want you to envision the Romans. If, if you've seen any of the any paintings or statues or anything like that about the Roman soldiers, remember the, the people back then didn't have pants and different things like we do. They wore like robes. The soldiers, they would wear, and the people, almost like a kilt-type length garment. And then they would have all of the armament and so forth on. Uh, I think it was last winter we went down to the Science Center and saw um, about Mount Vesuvius going off and the people that were buried and everything. And they unearthed all kinds of different weapons and the greaves that they wore over their shins and just all kinds of weaponry, different types of helmets and their swords and javelins and everything. And uh, I was intrigued by those things and I was walking around looking at all of those things in the statues. And I wish that you'd be able to have that in your mind as we, we go through uh, this information this evening. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, Ephesians 6, 10, and 11 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God. He doesn't say, if you'd like to do this, do it. He says, put it on. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The devil has schemes against us, traps. He's going to attack us, him and his forces. Therefore, we need to have this armor on so that we can be able to stand firm and fight. Near the end of Paul's life, think about his life and where he ended up there in Rome. And Roman soldiers were constantly surrounding the apostle. He lived in the presence of the greatest military power that was ever known back in those days. And night and day, a soldier was with Paul to ensure that he wouldn't escape. The Roman legion is considered the world's first professional army. The Roman imperial army was the earliest of the world's standing armies in which soldiers were regularly recruited they were cared for, and they finally received a pension from the state. Now this armor was very distinctive, and with it, 
they were able to subdue the world. Paul used figures of speech that reflected what he saw every day about our spiritual armor. He told Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith in 1 Timothy 1.18 and to suffer hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ in 2 Timothy 2.3. And we're told here again in Ephesians 6.12-19 as Christians to put on the full armor of God. I'm going to read those verses for you. Ephesians 6, 12 through 19. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, because we have this war against these people that were just mentioned, therefore take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having belted your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With every prayer and request, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be alert with all perseverance and every request for all the saints. And pray in my behalf that speech may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. The words here translated full armor in the Greek are panoplia. Panoplia is the name. And it brings to mind the imagery of the full armor of the heaven, heavenly armed legionnaire. Back at the beginning, when these guys fought, we're going to talk about this, they had heavy armor. I mean, they had to go through fatigues and exercise with this stuff daily, march with it, and know how to use these, these weapons. As time went off, Gibbons, we're going to read, it tells us that they started to slack off and said, hey, we don't want to carry this, we don't want to wear this, we don't want to do this. And that's when they started losing battles that's when they started to lose their territory. But we must position ourselves again to stand firm for the truth. We need to have an unblemished character, having a genuine zeal that is tempered with wisdom. We need to have a solid, firm knowledge of the Word of God. The good fortune, the happiness or the prosperity of the cause of Christ depends upon us making a stand. If we want the church here at Monroeville to be able to advance, we need to make that stand against evil and the things that are wrong and march and battle and know how to use these uh, parts of this armor that we are given. Remember, our fight is not a fleshly battle and our weaponry 
must not be carnal or worldly. Let's notice this armor of God and notice these figures that Paul gives us here. The, the little tags that he gives of these things. First off, the armor of God. There's the belt or girdle of truth. Ephesians six fourteen. I, when I studied this all the time, I thought this belt's, belt's needed to hold all the armor together. No, it's not. This was not an ornament that bound the other pieces of the armor together and, and gave the soldiers freedom of movement. In their culture, the, the people there wore long, loose-fitting robes. A lot of the soldiers, their robes went to their, their knees. And these garments were tied closely to the body when quick action was required. So this belt or this girdle of truth was to tie these clothes loose to them. So they're not flipping all around or blowing in the wind if they're running or whatever. They were to tie that, that garment, their clothes, to them. Here the believer is summoned to stand, therefore literally having girded your loins in truth. You see, we need to stand against the evil. We need to stand against those things. And we need this girdle, this belt of truth holding us together down there. Not all of the weapons. It needs to be that first part that centerpiece. You see, we move about this world more freely because we know the truth. Isaiah the prophet portrayed the Messiah as wearing this belt of righteousness around his loins and faithfulness as a belt around his waist in Isaiah eleven five. This is the center of the armor, this truth. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in truth. The word is the truth. So this is part of this armor. It's to hold me and to hold my tunic close to me. The New American Standard renders this clause as having belted your waist with truth. Ephesians six fourteen. Once this belt's put on, holding our clothes on, then you get the breastplate of righteousness, Ephesians 6.14. Now in first century reliefs, statues, sculptures, uh, only the centurions had a metal breastplate. The common foot soldiers, they had a leather breastplate with like leather shoulder pads. Okay, they were thick and they, they'd help protect them. But it was the people that were in charge of them, kind of like the sergeants. They were the ones that had the breastplates on. They were the ones who had metal on them, not all the common soldiers. They had leather. The breastplate of the Roman spearsmen was used also to protect the heart and other vital organs as arrows may be being shot at them or whatnot. And God himself wears righteousness like a breastplate. Ephesians, or excuse me, Isaiah 59, 17. Our heart is covered by righteousness. Psalms 119, 11. 
Or it, God's Word should be treasured in our heart to help protect it, to help us to know the truth and to know what is right when we're in that battle. You know, words are no defense against accusations. But actions, a righteous life, is something that can defend us. You know, anybody can say whatever they want. People perjure themselves all the time and lie with their words. But it's the actions that prove. And people, you know, Cody can say, Dave wasn't there. Dave was with me. We were doing this, that, or the other. He wasn't over there. It must have been somebody that looked like him, but it wasn't Dave. You know, and again, you have witnesses that can substantiate those things. The breastplate of righteousness, right living. This truth that's covering my heart. This treasures of God's word that are in my heart. And then we see having strapped on your feet. You're strapping these on your feet. The preparation of the gospel of peace, Ephesians 6, 15. In the army of the Caesars, it says this. Most important of all were the soldiers' heavy boots, or rather sandals, which were in many ways more serviceable than modern army boots. Their soles, made of several layers of leather and heavy studded with hollow-headed nails, sort of like spikes. I don't know if anybody ever played football or anything and a guy had metal spikes on. Eventually they got rid of that and made them use rubber and everything. But somebody had them metal spikes and they tramped on your hand or your foot or whatever. Man, they, they hurt you. But that's what these Roman legionnaires wore. They had these things and they had these spikes that would dig down into the ground help them to be able to stand. And they, again, were of various thicknesses. And um, on the average, they say that they were three-quarters of an inch long. Now, strips of cloth or fur were sometimes placed inside the sandals. And they were fastened to the foot by ankle thongs. So here you probably had a layer of nice thick uh, leather, You'd pound a bunch of these hollow spike nails to it, and then you just didn't put your foot in there, because what would happen? Those things would pop up, and they'd be rubbing your foot and cutting your feet open and everything. So you'd put another layer of leather, maybe another layer, and another layer, and another layer, and another layer, and you'd have multiple layers holding this together. Then you would get this cloth or fur and you'd wrap that stuff around your foot and it would kind of be a cushion and you would put that on there. Then they would get these thongs of leather, these straps, wrap them around those boots and wrap them kind of up your shins and up your ankles and they would help protect your ankles and they'd be on your feet and they'd be able to have heavy marches and run with these things on. They gave them good footing where the other enemies, the barbarians and the Goths and so forth, they didn't realize these things. It wasn't until uh, down the road that they started to make these types of armament and, and equipment. 
The military successes of both Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar were due in large measure to their armies being well shod and thus able to undertake long marches at incredible speeds over rough terrain. The Expositor's Bible commentary says that. These boots would give the soldier a firm footing during battle. They were designed to make it difficult to walk backwards. The way those things were put in there, you, you didn't want to go backwards. What did they want the Roman soldiers to do? Keep going. Keep fighting. Go forward. And that's how they designed these boots. Our sound footing must be supplied by the gospel of peace. We want to reconcile people to God. We want to teach the truth. And we need to have these good, solid shoes on, this gospel of peace that we're going out into the world and trying to, again, overcome the false doctrines and teachings and bring people to Christ where they need to be. Then it says there in Ephesians 6.16, taking up the shield of faith. What's taking it up mean? Here's my shield laying there. I hope it's not that little. I'm pretty big. What do I need to do? I need to pick it up. I need to take it up. Put it on. Have it. Now, think of the shield that these guys had. Roman shields were composed of leather or wicker. The normal size was four feet high, two feet wide, and a half of a foot thick. Big, wasn't it? Now think about this as, as I read these things for you. The word Paul uses is not the comparatively small round shield here. It's, it is that for the great oblong shaped or the big rectangle shaped because they had the oblong ones and then they started to make them like a, a rectangle. They were able to join them together better. And uh, these were what they called heavy armed warriors. All of their common foot soldiers, these guys had them. Unless you were in the cavalry or you were shooting arrows from behind or whatever, these things were something that you carried. Now, if you had to carry that, well, I'm not going to get to it. We'll go through all the, the weapons that they have. They had these. And they say that these were a most dangerous weapon. How is a shield a weapon? In ancient warfare. And... Fiery darts would have been shot from the enemies. They could have been a bow lit on fire. And it was, the dart was tipped in a pitch and it was caught on fire and they would shoot these things. That's why you had a half of a foot thick. Because the thing hit, if it just hit and it was skinny, what would happen? It would just come right through there and crack your arm or maybe come through and hit you. So these things were layered in a way that they would catch this dart and put the fire out. And you'd be able to continue to fight. So the pitch-soaked um, arrows and darts were either thrown or launched at them. And these great shields um, were of two sections. They would have different sections of wood. They'd glue them together. 
And when the shield was presented to the dart, the dart sank into the wood, the flames were put out. Faith can deal with the darts of temptation. With Paul, faith is always complete trust in Christ. When we walk close to Christ, we are safe from temptation. And when those things are shot at us, if we have that shield of faith, we can hold it up and bang. It'll hit it and that's it. Keep fighting. Keep moving forward. Okay. William Barclay uh, in his letters, uh, commentaries about Galatians and Ephesians brought that information up. Now, the change from these big shields to going down to these small round shields from these rectangle shields um, mean the soldiers no longer needed to wear these greaves, these skin protection, bone protections that they would wear. Uh, they were different sizes when we went and saw them at that museum. They were like a, a metal that kind of went over your knee and they were bent and they had some maybe ornaments or whatever and they went down the leg and you could tell that they had some kind of leather there were cuts in them and the leather would wrap around and somehow they would attach them with leather on the back of their leg. So they weren't really concerned about the back. But if you got hit in the shin, man, that would hurt. That could stop you from moving. So these things were there to help protect you as uh, you were advancing and you were moving. And they greatly increased their mobility. <clears throat> I'm in my introduction. I don't know if we're ever going to get done. The tortoise formation was a formation used commonly by the Roman legions during battles, particularly sieges. Lastly, a word must be said about the tortoise formation, which would be used either in advance or retreat against a violent attack of hostile weapons. The soldiers of the front rank, closely linked together, protected themselves by holding their shields, these four foot tall shields together and those in the rear ranks would hold their shields up over top of them and they would kind of be like in a tortoise and they could move and, and be able to go and if darts or arrows or javelins or whatever are hitting that they're not hitting the soldiers if they're keeping everything tight and uh, uniformed so they were able to have much success in using this and having these uh, barriers of these shields to be able to, to fight the enemies. Um, this was written in the Roman legions by Parker. Now, we need to remember that our enemy, the devil, doesn't always attack directly. He attacks in multi-ways. Okay, so the shields is a very important item. And if you're with other people that have that shield, you can get close together. You can protect each other. Okay, protect each other from getting hit and things coming and trying to hit you in the head or whatnot from the sides and uh, from the front. And you can still keep advancing. Or if you have to, you can keep in that formation and retreat till you can regroup. Then it says there in verse 17, the helmet of salvation. Take, take it. Take the helmet of salvation. This headgear was generally of bronze material, fitted inside with an iron skull cap lined with leather or cloth. 
It was a, an important piece of armor. If you were hit hard enough in the head, you could be killed very quickly. So you needed that, that helmet on your head to be able to help protect you. We are to take this helmet from God. It's our salvation, Isaiah 59, 17, the first part of that verse. He put on righteousness, right, righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. You ne we need to have our minds protected, our brains, that we're able to keep the information that we have in there that we're saved. It's important information to know that we're saved according to the scriptures. And we don't want Satan banging us in the head and, and uh, messing our, our thinking up, uh, the theology that the scriptures teach. Then we see this sword of the spirit. Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. This is the offensive weapon as described by Josephus. Uh, consisted, uh, these weapons, uh, a javelin, a throwing spear, a Spanish sword, and a dagger, that one that was put on the left side and another one on the right side. So if you dropped one, it got knocked out of your hand, you had another dagger, and you'd pull it out. Weapons for attack included the javelin, two of which were carried by each man. The javelin was seven feet tall, and the top part of it, three feet of it, was made of iron. So these things were heavy, okay? Uh, the sword was a double-edged weapon, about two foot long, two inches wide. They were carried in a scabbard attached to the belt on the right side of the body or the left. Uh, and most of them had both. These weapons were not a slashing weapon. These were a thrust, stabbing weapon. If, uh, Josh, we got in a fight and I'm swinging this around, what can I do? I can cut you. You know, you can live from that, right? If I penetrate your armor, <laughs> get that deep inside you and hit your organs or whatever, now you're hurting. So they taught these men how to use the two-edged sword to penetrate and to stab. Now, of course, if you're in a b battle, there's going to be times where you may have to swing the thing to knock their weapons down or out of the way. But they practiced using this as a stabbing weapon. <clears throat> uh, weapon training was most important. The intelligent use of the sword is mentioned, particularly in a, a surviving Roman training manual. The method taught was to thrust rather than slash at an opponent, for a slash cut rarely killed but the thrust makes a deep penetration of the vital organs. The Roman short sword was clearly designed for stabbing. It was two foot long. Okay. With its sharp angled point, um, it could be used again to be able to make these stabbing cuts. Michael Simpkins uh, in the Wars of Rome gave that information. Our only offensive weapon is the Word of God. Never caught this before. Again, New American Standard, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even 
penetrating. We're not using God's word and slashing it and everything. We're stabbing, we're penetrating as far as the soul. Where's the soul at in my body? So I'm going to penetrate deep in there to get into the soul and the spirit, into the joints and into the marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's what the word of God should be used for by us. We ought to get deep with it to be able to help people with their problems or, again, to eliminate those who are attacking truth. Christ fought, fought Satan in the desert with this weapon. The Word of God, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And we're not wasting our times when we're sitting around sharpening our sword. Getting it sharp. Keeping the rust off of it. We need to be in it. Why? So that we know it, we understand it, and we can use it. And our armor must be put on properly. Ephesians six eighteen. With every prayer and quest, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be alert with all perseverance and every request for all the saints. The armor should be donned and put on with prayer. And now, Lord, look at their threats. Grant it to your bondservants to speak your word with all confidence. Help us to be able to use this armor you've given us and this sword with all confidence. He's praying. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's in Acts chapter 4, 29 through 31. So we need to pray always and pray intently. Pray for others. We're foot soldiers and God's in control and we need to keep advancing and moving forward. We're Christ's soldiers and must put on the full armor of God and arise and stand and fight the evil one. A lesson from Rome. I'll try to read this quick. There's a lot of information here, but good stuff. The Jewish priest and general Flavius Josephus lived during the zenith of Romans' military glory. He was made a citizen by Vespian, and he traveled with the legions. Roman soldiers always carried their weapons with them, even during times of peace. Every soldier was exercised daily. Every day they exercised with their weapons. And that with great diligence, as if it were a time of war, which is the reason why they bear the fatigues of battle so easily. Why? Because their muscles are strong. They know how to use the javelin and the sword and the shield and so on and so forth. Josephus, The Jewish War, Book 3, Chapter 5. I'm going to be reading other quotes of this book. This vast empire of theirs, this is coming from Josephus, The Jewish War, Book 3, Chapter 5 also. It says, The, the vast empire of theirs was a prize of valor and not a gift of fortune. For their nation does not wait for the outbreak of war to give men their first lesson in arms. They do not sit with folded hands in peacetime only to put them on in motion of the hour of need. On the contrary, as though they had been born with weapons in hand, they never have a truce from training, never wait for emergencies to arise. Moreover, their, 
their peace maneuvers are no less strenuous than veritable warfare. Each soldier daily throws all of his energy into his drills as though he were in action. Hence, that perfect ease with which they succeed, the shock of battle. The confusion breaks their customary formations. No panic or paralysis, no fig, uh, fatigue exhausts them. And their opponents cannot match these qualities. Victory is in, invariable and certain consequences. Indeed, it would not be wrong to describe their maneuvers as bloodless combats and their combats as murderous, bloody maneuvers. This is them practicing. The Flavius Josephus says there's just not bloodshed, but it's just as bloody and murderous and tough as if they were actually in the war fighting. So I don't know how these guys fought or what they were doing or what Josephus saw, but that's what he wrote. He goes on and says this, by their military exercises, the Romans instilled into their soldiers fortitude, not only of body, but also of soul. Fear, to, fear too, plays its part in their training. For they have laws which punish with death, not merely desertion of the ranks, but even a slight neglect of duty. Their generals are held in even greater awe than the laws. This perfect discipline makes the arms an ornament of peacetime and in war wields the whole into a single body. So compact are their ranks, so alert are their movements in wheeling to the right or to the left, so quick are their ears to hear the orders. Their eyes are waiting for the signals. Their hands act upon these signals. Again, written by Josephus. If only we could become as familiar with our weapons and our armor. Acts 17.11 says, Now these people were more noble-minded, this is the Bereans, than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily. Daily they were sharpening their swords. Daily they were in the book, trying to find answers and looking at the prophecies and teachings and making sure whether the things that were being said were so or not. Well, what caused their military downfall and finally the downfall of Rome? This is written by Edward Gibbon, History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 3, pages 271 and 272. Nearly all historians agree Rome brought about its own downfall. Now, there are a bunch of reasons. The military is just one reason. It is the just and important observation of Vegetius that the infantry was invariably covered with defensive armor. This guy said back in the beginning, they had all this heavy armor. They were ready. They knew how to use it. They would go into battle and, and use this weaponry. 
Um, some of it was used as cover. It was defensive armor, others for attack. And it was the foundation of the city and the, the reign until the Roman emperor, Graetian. The relaxation of the discipline and the disuse of exercise rendered the soldiers less able, less willing to support the fatigues of the service. They complained of the weight of the armor, which they seldom wore, and they continuously obtained the permission from their supervisors, laying aside both the front and the back armor and their helmets. The heavy weapons of their ancestors, the short sword and the variable javelin, which had subdued the world, insensibly were dropped from their feeble hands. As the use of the shield is compatible with that of the bow, they reluctantly marched into the battle, condemned to suffer either the pain of wounds or the shame of flight, and always disposed to prefer the more shameful alternative. The Calvary of the Goths and the Huns had felt the benefits and adopted the use of the defensive armors that Rome used to use. And as they excelled in the management of missile weapons, they easily overwhelmed the naked and trembling legions because they took all their protective weaponry off, their armor. Because of that, they were just going out there with their little tunics on and a shield and a dagger and a bow and arrow. That wasn't enough in the type of close battles and that that they were engaged in. Their heads and breasts were exposed without defense to the arrows of the barbarians, the loss of armies, the destruction of cities, the dishonor of the Roman name ineffectually solicited the successors of Graetian to restore the helmets and the front and back armor of the infantry <clears throat> and that they may be considered these things as the immediate cause of the downfall of the empire. Yes, we know of the perversions and the taxations and all those things uh, that they did. But when they were out battling, they were losing territory. They were losing power because they weren't implementing the same strategies that they once did earlier with the legions. Let me ask a question to you. Is the gospel armor too heavy for you? Do you earnestly contend for the faith? Or do you apologize for it? Our weapons are for to be pulling down strongholds, pulling down thoughts and arguments that are out there. We must attack the fortresses and the castles. We must attack the cathedrals, the citadels of air. Not just hold our own ground, but we need to go and battle against those things and tear them down. Those things are now ruling the roost in America and in the world. Who's going to stand up and fight? We need to put on the full armor of God. Christ's soldiers, arise! Put the armor on. we got a battle to fight. 
Let's not get lazy and say, oh, we're here, we've done this, that, or the other. Yeah, but we got this, that, and the other yet to do. We need to get out there and keep fighting. Sometimes Christians need a course in enemy recognition. Jesus declared that the man who's not with him is against him in Matthew 12, 30. And the devil does not attack under his own banner. Sometimes he advances under a flag of truce. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen and 15 says, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He tries to look like a good guy. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They try to say, oh, we're right and we're doing good. Whose end will be according to their deeds. The welfare of the cause of Christ depends upon your willingness to stand. Confederate General Thomas J. Jackson was one of the commanders at the First Battle of Bull Run. When both the right and left flanks of the Confederate Army fell back, Jackson's troops that were in the middle held their ground and stayed there. General Bernard S.B. rallied his disorganized men with these words. There's Jackson standing as a stone wall. This didn't mean that Jackson stood there useless like a stone statue. It meant that he and his men stood firm in the heat of battle. They kept fighting. They didn't retreat. Christians are engaged in a great spiritual battle. Sometimes we think we are waging war when all we're doing is running around and making a lot of noise. We have to take a firm stand against <clears throat> the advancing enemies of truth. We need to be Christian soldiers, rising, listening for the horn, listening for the trumpet, listening for the call, ready with our armor on to go out there and fight and stand firm for God and Christ and the church. And you know, there's only one way that I know to put on the armor of God. And that is only possible when you become a Christian. Have you accepted Christ and accepted the gospel of Jesus? If not, why not now? Why not right now? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God? If you do and you're willing to confess that before men and then repent of your sins and then be immersed for the forgiveness of those sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, as Acts 2.38 says, we're going to be standing here in a few moments and singing the hymn of invitation. The water's warm and ready. Robes are ready. We got tiles back there, everything. You just need to come and tell us your wishes. And we can take your confession and have you immersed into Christ in the matter of minutes. And remember, that once you become a Christian, that's just the beginning. That's when you put on the form of God and start fighting the good fight of the faith. And that's when we need to be faithful unto the end to receive that crown of life.